Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. What does it mean to love your neighbor as you love yourself? You know, practically every person in this country knows that expression, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And... Nobody will take exception to that kind of statement, but uh, when you build a house for a family, you know the name of a neighbor that you didn't know before, and you understand their situation, and you realize at the end of the day or at the end of the week that this neighbor, because of your activity, has life a little better, and you feel, I have made a difference building a sense of community one house at a time with the volunteers of Habitat for Humanity. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Habitat for Humanity International is an extraordinary service organization that unites community volunteers and families in need of decent homes. They work together to build houses. With volunteer labor, construction costs are kept low. Habitat makes no profit when it sells these houses to the families. In the U.S., the average price is $39,000. The families generally have 20 years to pay it off in monthly installments. Absolutely no interest is charged. Habitat completes about 30 new houses each day. These add up to thousands of houses every year in the United States and thousands more in Latin America, Africa, and other continents. Hundreds of thousands of people now live in Habitat homes, and hundreds of thousands of volunteers pitched in to help make it happen. Former President Jimmy Carter personally rolls up his sleeves every year. The idea originated with Millard Fuller, an Alabama lawyer who made a fortune as a marketer and publisher. More than 30 years ago, to save a marriage that was drowning in materialism, he sold off his business and donated the profits to charity. Fuller and his wife Linda decided they would live modestly and devote themselves to community and spiritual service. They moved to Americus, Georgia, where Habitat was founded in 1976. Our conversation with Millard Fuller, the president of Habitat, was taped in New York City. Here was this need for people to have a good place to live. And right there in rural southwest Georgia, there were just thousands of these shacks dotting the countryside. 
of people living in pitiful living conditions. Most of them had no land. They were landless. They were the descendants of the slaves who had lived on the plantations there, and they had been freed uh, uh, after the Civil War. But nobody really ever solved the problem of... Uh, of providing them with some land and a house and a way to make uh, a living. And uh, they were too poor to go to the bank. Even if they could get a loan at the bank to build a house, they couldn't pay them interest. So there they were. And we wanted to call people of faith, especially the people in the various churches, to lay aside denominational differences and help us meet this very pressing human need of providing housing for people who needed a good place to live on terms they could afford to pay. What was it about people who have either no homes or very substandard quality homes that touched you? What about that particular need spoke to you so deeply that you've built this whole international service project around that? Well, the central ethic of the Christian faith is love. And uh, love is expressed in specific ways. I mean, if a person is hurting uh, emotionally or psychologically, uh, you express love to them by simply sitting with them, uh, being there at a time of uh, bereavement, uh, time of grief, time of confusion, chaos in their lives. Um, but if a person is sitting in a lousy house, <laughs> the best way to express love is to get them out of it and get them into a good place to live. And uh, I want to be a loving person. I, I want my life to be characterized as a person who spreads love abroad. Uh, I do it imperfectly, of course, but that's my heart's desire and has been for a very long time. And I just saw that uh, here were all of these people uh, there in southwest Georgia languishing in these pitiful, truly pitiful living conditions. Could you describe them? Well, a typical South Georgia shack in those days was uh, an unpainted house, uh, no insulation whatsoever, uh, a, a floor that was one single board thick, uh, typically with big holes in it. Uh, the roof was uh, wooden shingles or sometimes uh, rolled out uh, roofing, uh, very often uh, had holes in it, uh, leaked, uh, the front door didn't close very well so that in the winter great gusts of cold air would come blowing in. Quite often only a fireplace or a wood stove to provide heat. And uh, in the summertime it was like living in an oven and in the wintertime it was like living in a refrigerator. It was just a pitiful, pitiful way to live. Many of them with an outdoor toilet and uncertainty because you're living, these families were living on somebody else's land. So any day they were sitting there knowing the landowner could come and say, you are out of here. I want you to vacate this house. I'm going to tear it down and make it into a pasture because I bought some more cows and I need this space to have more grazing for my cows. And there was no recourse. They were just vulnerable, totally vulnerable people. And uh, my heart was touched by the plight of these people. And uh, I wanted to be a part of... Uh, making it possible for them to have a sense of security and uh, the, the comfort of a modest but good and solid house to live in. Your heart was touched. Did you get to 
know any of the tenant farmers and, and the other people who lived under these conditions? I think one of the most dramatic uh, situations that I experienced in those early days was uh, uh, with the Reynolds family. Uh, they lived in a house very much like I just described. Uh, they had, in their case, they had no water. They had to go in their rickety old car for several miles and get water out of somebody else's well and bring it back. And uh, we built a house for them. The husband's name was Willie James. Uh, the, the, mother, the wife's name was Rose Bell. And uh, these were wonderful people. Uh, we became very good friends, but uh, they were poor and they had never had the benefit of uh, being able to get an education, so they were not well educated. Um, but we built a house, a uh, modest house, about a thousand square feet, three bedrooms, one bathroom. But I'll never forget, uh, uh, they were so excited about this new house that uh, they moved in immediately when it was finished. They right in, you know. And I went up later that afternoon, and there was my friend, Rose Bell. I'm quite tall, I'm six feet four, and she was probably five feet. She was standing, this little lady, standing in the middle of the living room floor, and I walked in, she's just beaming from ear to ear. And I said, Rose Bell, uh, I came up uh, to check on you and see if you got moved in okay. Oh, Lord, she said, yes, we got moved in just fine. And she said, oh, I'm just so grateful for this house. I said, well, I didn't come up here to get accolades. Uh, I'm on a practical mission. Uh, do the doors open and close properly? Maybe a window's stuck. Uh, maybe there's a leak in the bathroom. No, she says, Millard, there ain't nothing wrong with this house. Being in here is like we was dead and buried and got dug up. So she was delighted. Absolutely thrilled. And it transformed their life. And it just, you know, and having those kinds of experiences uh, fill, fill, fill me, filled me and do to this day, fill me with great joy. What is the effect on people of being given a simple, decent place to live, people who have not had that luxury before? Well, I often uh, think of it like this. Uh, I believe a house is to a human family what soil is to a plant. It gives a family a place to be rooted, and a family needs a place to be rooted. And if a family does not have a place, that family is in trouble. And particularly the children are in trouble because they never feel secure, they never feel uh, that, that they have a place that is theirs, so they can never blossom and grow and become all that God intended. But you put a child, you put a family in a good place, doesn't have to be fancy, but a good, solid, adequate place. And I have seen time and time again the little children just blossom and their grades improve, the relationships in the family get better, uh, the parents, uh, are, the, the, the family relations are more harmonious and the family is able to function because they have a foundation to stand on. And another equally important ingredient is to be the recipient of a lot of love and affirmation. And they get that in Habitat for Humanity because we don't just build a bunch of houses. We relate on a love uh, basis with these families and they know that these local Habitat for Humanity organizations really care for them. And the people who come out and volunteer, almost not all of whom, but a very high percentage of whom come out of the churches and they're coming out of a religious motivation, not making money but as volunteers. But they want to be of help, and they want to help their neighbors and help them in a specific way and help them to grow.
We're talking with Millard Fuller, founder and president of Habitat for Humanity. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. You've been blessed with uh, support from some very famous people, most notably former President Jimmy Carter. How did he connect with Habitat, and what is his involvement in your activities? Well, uh, former President Carter and uh, his wife Rosalind are neighbors. Uh, Habitat Humanity is headquartered in Americus, Georgia, 140 miles south of Atlanta, and that's where my wife Linda and I live. And also uh, Plains, which is the home of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, is only about nine miles from Americus. So I um, began to uh, see that President Carter and Ms. Carter were interested in Habitat for Humanity. They made a contribution uh, to the work, a financial contribution. Uh, they came uh, and uh, President Carter spoke. We had a board meeting in Americus, Georgia. So. I called his secretary and uh, requested a meeting with President Carter at his home, and he granted uh, me uh, an interview with him. So I went to his home, and uh, Ms. Carter and President Carter greeted me in their living room, and we sat down there, and I said, President Carter and Ms. Carter, I'm here as a neighbor, uh, and I'm here uh, as president of Habitat Humanity to ask you a simple question. Uh, I have observed that the two of you are interested in Habitat Humanity because you've made a financial contribution. President Carter, you came and spoke a word of encouragement and greeting to our board when we met in Americas a few weeks ago. And I'm here to ask if you're interested or very interested. Well, he was amused by my question. <laughs> so this famous smile came on his face. And uh, he looked at, at, at Ms. Carter and he said, I, we're very interested. He served on our board for three years, Habitat International Board of Directors. He did fundraising for us, continues to do fundraising to this day. He started uh, on Labor Day, uh, he started Labor Day weekend in 1984 uh, to build with us. He came to New York City and uh, built uh, on the Lower East Side, and every year since, for 15 years, uh, President Carter has been building every year in a different place uh, a, a group of houses. Uh, it's such a striking image to see a former president of the United States in his work clothes, uh, obviously working very hard and seriously, and um, I think people have really responded to that. They have indeed. Uh, president Carter is a serious Christian and uh, a great humanitarian, and he loves to build. In the early days, people would often ask me, does he really build or does he just come out for the photographs and then go back to the hotel? Uh, the answer is he did and does work hard. He works a typical 8, 10, 12, sometimes 14-hour day uh, building these houses, and he works right alongside uh, the other volunteers. And he does it because he enjoys it, and he does a great job. He described the work of Habitat this way. He said, we do not assume the roles of generous and somewhat superior benefactors but of real partners with those who occupy the new homes. Do you ever struggle with pride in the work that you're doing? And how do you avoid the trap of feeling superior to the people who ultimately receive the homes? Well, one of the things that I've learned uh, in my dealings with uh, low-income people now for many years is that they have a great wisdom about them. And I think uh, many times when, when you're so comfortable in terms of material things that you lose 
a lot of the wisdom that comes out of struggle. I remember one time I was invited to speak at uh, Yale Divinity School, and I went to one of our homeowners, and I said, uh, uh, Ethel, her name was Ethel, I said, Ethel, I've been invited to speak to Yale Divinity School. I said, I'm just a country boy from Alabama. I don't know what to say to those people. I said, to me, that's uptown. She said, Millard, I know exactly what you need to tell them. You go up there to Yale and you tell them if you wants to go high, you've got to go low. <laughs> well, it's that wisdom that comes from the poor. If you want to go high, you've got to go low. What does that mean? It means if you want to be somebody in God's eyes, you better be a servant. You had better serve other people if you want to really be somebody. And I think that is uh, why... Uh, people have been so captivated by Jimmy Carter's involvement in Habitat for Humanity. Obviously, as a former president, he doesn't need to put on any dirty work clothes for the rest of his life. But because he has a servant's mentality, he's willing to get dirty and get sweaty and live on a bunk bed, and as he's done down in uh, uh, Tijuana, Mexico, live in a tent and sleep on the ground and help really low-income people have a good place to live. That's something he didn't have to do, but he did it out of a servant's heart. And in your own experience leading this international organization, providing great service and great help, are there times when you feel pride creeping in? Is that something that, that you have to wrestle with? Um, well, I'm not sure how to answer that, really. Um, obviously, I am pleased. I feel very blessed uh, to be the president and founder of uh, an organization that, is, that has built thousands of houses, uh, more than 100,000 houses for more than half a million people. More than 100,000 houses. That's like building a city. Yes, uh, and by the year 2004 or 2005, that number will double, and we will have provided housing for more than a million people. But Habitat for Humanity has resulted from thousands and thousands and thousands of people, the most famous of whom happens to be Jimmy Carter, but we've got people all over the political spectrum and all over the religious spectrum. I've seen them on the work sites get so emotional they couldn't contain their tears, and they weep, tears of great emotion and joy because of what they've experienced in getting out there and building a modest house for a needy family. And I've seen the families cry and hug one another. It's a joyous thing. And I just feel humbly grateful to be a small part of it. How does Habitat for Humanity select the families to help? Each local affiliate has their own committee structure. And one committee is the Family Selection Committee. And that Family Selection Committee receives applications from families. And each local group has their own criteria, but the two criteria which are the same everywhere is that to receive a Habitat house, you have to be living in inadequate or substandard housing, and your income has to be so low that you can't go get a conventional loan from a bank or a savings and loan association. And if you're living in bad housing and you're too poor, you can't go get a conventional lending from somebody, you're eligible to be considered to receive a Habitat house. But even if you're accepted, it's not a giveaway. You've got to help build it. And after it's finished, you move in, you got to pay the money back, but on the, what we call the Bible finance plan, at no profit, no interest. So you have to be willing to help out. You call the, right. the physical participation of the recipients right. sweat equity. Right. And also, of course, the volunteers who flock to these various projects 
participate physically in the building. What if someone wants to help but can't tell a, a hammer from a screwdriver? No problem. Um, Habitat Humanity can use anybody that has a willing heart. Uh, the building of a house is not just driving nails and sawing boards. Somebody has got to put the materials together. Somebody's got to go get everything and put it together and organize it. Money's got to be raised, so somebody's got to go out and make speeches at churches and civic clubs and knock on doors of corporations and foundations and other funding agencies. Somebody's got to write the newsletters. Somebody's got to cook all the meals for all those hungry volunteers who are out there pounding the nails and sawing the boards. So we can use anybody who has a willing heart if they want to be involved and they have a desire to help. There's a place for them in Habitat for Humanity. We're talking with Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity, headquartered in Americus, Georgia. The volunteer builders literally come from every walk of life. Um, they are young, they are old. Um, we particularly have people in their teens and 20s and then early age retirement people in their 60s and 70s. Uh, we have fewer people in the middle years, uh, 30s and 40s and 50s, because they're in their careers and so forth. We have some of those, but we have huge numbers of the young and the retirement age. What so attracts these people? Well, I think overwhelmingly the motivation is a religious one. And what is that exactly? The motivation is that they feel that what they're doing is pleasing to God. Uh, you know, this country is a country that believes in God. All of the polls show that overwhelmingly Americans believe in God. And uh, people want to do what is pleasing to God. And the scriptures could not be clearer. In the Bible, there are more than 700 references to helping the poor. And so people who have made a practice of, uh, of, of going to church, uh, of going to a synagogue, they know what the teachings are. We want to give people an opportunity to, to have a full-bodied expression of their faith and not feel that just going to church on Sunday makes you a godly person. That's the beginning of true religion and not the end of it. Do you think that's a, a big problem, the um, gap between professing religious belief and actually bringing it into one's daily actions and the thoughts that, that we have that, that, every that day? That is a gap, and, and frankly, I think that a lot of uh, young people, especially young people, are attracted to this work because there's a certain emptiness in just the verbal expression, and that's it. Uh, it's like eating cotton candy at the, at the fair. You know, it looks like there's a lot there, but you bite into it, and it's mostly air. And when you, when you compress it down, it's a tiny little bit that makes this big old ball that, that looks like it's a lot, and there's nothing there. And I think religion, without the action component, is deficient. Um, and Habitat for Humanity, uh, when, you, when you build a house for somebody and you see what it means to the people, and you see these tears, and people are, are rejoicing and shedding tears of joy, you say, wow, I really did something. This made a difference, and this is real love. I touched somebody's heart, and that touches the heart of the giver, and, and, it, and it's satisfying. It's not an empty feeling that you've engaged in something 
but it didn't it didn't didn't amount to very much. And what does the person who puts his or her faith into practice and rolls up their sleeves and directly renders help, such as in constructing a house, what does that person learn from the process? How does it help their own spiritual growth in a, in a way that uplifts them and, and their life and their consciousness? I think uh, they learn something about themselves uh, as they engage in this. Uh, I've heard President Carter say that he's learned more about the real problems of the poor working with Habitat for Humanity than anything he ever learned as governor or president because he came face to face with these families, knowing them by name, knowing the names of their children by name. And he gained, you know, experiencing something uh, enables a person to gain understanding. My wife Linda and I travel extensively around the world. Uh, we visit our work all over the world. And we make it a habit when we travel of very, very frequently staying in the homes of the families that we build houses for. And when you spend the night with a very low-income family, you sleep on their beds, you go out back and use their uh, toilet facilities, and you bathe in their little uh, bath uh, house, out back of the house, and you eat their meals, you gain understanding. And uh, I remember we were down in uh, El Salvador a couple of years ago and we spent the night with a Habitat family and we noticed that the furniture was very sparse. It was a little table and a couple of chairs and one little bed and a little side table. It was very sparse. But what really touched us the next morning was when we found out that the family actually had no furniture at all. They had rented furniture for the one day that we were guests in their home. And that really hit home. That they had a house, but that's all they had, and they felt blessed to have the four walls and a floor and a roof, but they didn't have enough money to buy any furniture, so they were just in the house with nothing, uh, hoping to get up enough money as time went along to buy a few chairs and buy some tables and so forth. And when you return from a trip like that, what are your reflections on the luxuries of your own home? Well, my wife and I try to live very simply. Uh, the house we live in in America's Georgia, we paid $12,500 for it. Uh, we have added to it, uh, not added to it physically, but we've, you know, we've polished the floors up and, and sanded the floors and we've painted the house inside and out. Uh, but it still has the same roof on it that it had when we bought it. Um, and uh, we probably have in the house now about what we spend on a Habitat for Humanity house in the United States, which is vastly more than a house cost in El Salvador. But I think uh, it's important uh, that uh, people who have the ability to generate a lot of resources, that does not necessarily give you a God-ordained right to lavish all those resources on yourself. If you're serious about loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself, you need to put some restrictions on your consumption of the earth's resources. And so we, we constantly, my wife and I, Linda and I, constantly are trying to live a modest lifestyle uh, so that we have some integrity in our lives in terms of being world citizens. The work of Habitat for Humanity comes about largely because hundreds of thousands of individuals have made small contributions of their time and effort and of their money. 
For Habitat founder Millard Fuller, this support represents a commitment of being open to others and staying attuned to their basic needs. A lot of people who could help don't do it. They wall themselves off from the problems and uh, instead of reaching out with a loving, caring hand, they sort of retreat. Uh, and they, I think it, to the extent that you retreat from uh, helping, your soul shrivels up. And, uh, and, but I see people doing that and I think it's a sad thing. It's sad for the people who don't get helped because they've retreated and it's saddest of all for the persons who are retreating because even though they may have a lot of resources, they are the poorest of the poor. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Tom Bryan. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Humankind Program Number 10, is dedicated to the memory of Millard Fuller. The executive producer is David Freudberg. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.